Hello, God for Grown Ups listeners. It's Dan Peterson, sharing my sermon from Queen Anne Lutheran Church's weekly audio service. This is going to go a direction that might surprise you, it might not, but I wanted to do something a little different this Sunday, and I do so inspired by a great event that took place earlier this week. Bear with me. We're going to cover a lot of ground, going to get a little bit in the weeds, but by the end of this, you'll see a connection between Jesus, Jewish mystical theology, and contemporary astrophysics. You all know the beginning. Read by the dashing James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise, its five-year mission was simple to seek out new life and new civilizations, to explore strange new worlds, to boldly go where no man has gone before. What? (laughs) That wasn't planned. That was by the work of the Spirit. What some of you may not know is that William Shatner, the actor who played Captain Kirk, pursued a similar mission earlier this week. For 11 minutes, he went where no 90-year-old man has gone before, namely, into space. Shatner did it aboard the New Shepard, a suborbital spacecraft built by Blue Origins. By the end, he traveled nearly 350,000 feet above the surface of the Earth, reaching a maximum velocity of 2,235 miles per hour, which by my calculation is about warp two. It was astounding, a return to the beginning, a journey fit for a starship captain. Today, I want to return to another beginning. Not the beginning of a mission into space, as was the case with Star Trek, but to the beginning of space itself. According to the dominant scientific theory, the universe began around 13.8 billion years ago with a big bang. Out of this colossal explosion would come all the contents of the universe, its moons and stars, its planets, and eventually, it's people. For years, I thought I understood the theory. Space and time have always existed, I assumed. The Big Bang simply filled it with matter and energy. Turns out, this is not a first. I was wrong, totally wrong. Big Bang theory, in contrast to the idea that space has always existed, claims that space itself had a beginning. The explosion that started it all did not introduce stars and planets into the empty void of a universe that already existed. It introduced space itself into existence. And with space came time. Are you confused? 
Perhaps you should be, but not for the reason you might think. You see, the problem with Big Bang Theory, in my very humble view, is not the science. It's the metaphor science uses to explain it. So this morning, I'd like to propose an alternative. Instead of speaking of the universe's origin as a Big Bang, why not think of it as a Big Bubble? In the beginning, one where truly nothing existed, not even empty space, an ever-expanding bubble containing space and time suddenly appeared. This bubble encapsulated the bang that took place within it. As temperatures from the bang within the bubble cooled, the coalescence of subatomic particles and atoms would eventually lead to the appearance of matter. The rest, as they say, was cosmic history. What I have just described hopefully makes sense. Regardless of the metaphor we use, the theory, of course, remains the same. We know the universe is expanding, that galaxies like continents are drifting apart. If we extrapolate this cosmic expansion backwards in time, using the known laws of physics, the theory describes an increasingly concentrated cosmos preceded by a singularity in which space and time lose meaning, typically named the Big Bang Singularity. Now, when I first heard about the Big Bang Singularity, probably while watching the movie Interstellar back in 2014, my immediate thought, my immediate thought was God. Think about it. Classical theology teaches that God resides likewise beyond space and time. Space and time, in other words, lose meaning when applied to God. How is this any different from the singularity posited by science? Maybe, I wonder, the singularity is sacred. Now, in a famous analogy, a theologian compared God to the guard in a watchtower. This is really cool, because what he's going to do is show the relationship between God and time. Below the guard stretches a long road which symbolizes time. As travelers on the road, each of us experience it moment by moment, step by step. We can look back on our journey and survey the past, we can also look ahead to anticipate the future. Nevertheless, we are always stuck in the present. Like the guard in the watchtower, however, God can see the entire road all at once. God exists, as it were, above time. He sees it all at once, the way the watchtower guard sees the whole road all at once. Of course, when God descends from the watchtower to join us in the person of Christ, God's experience of time presumably changes. But that's a problem for Christian theology. 
My question has to do with the science. Perhaps you've wondered about it too, and I really wonder, I would love to hear about this after service if you have. Into what is the universe expanding? Let's go back to the bubble for a second. Its expansion represents the ever-increasing size of the universe. But what lies outside of it? Have you ever wondered that? If you were standing on the edge of the cosmos and you threw a rock into the realm that lies beyond, what would happen to the rock? Would it bounce back? Or would it simply disappear in the film of the bubble itself? Since space and time have no meaning beyond the bubble or before the Big Bang, language accordingly falters. Words like realm, beyond, those are spatial designations. Words like after or outside, those are obviously temporal designations, do not apply. What a cosmic conundrum. Forget the science. Maybe we do need a theologian. Of course we do. But we need one, in this case, outside our tradition. In 1572, an epidemic swept through Safed, a small village of Jewish inhabitants perched high above the Sea of Galilee, commanding immense vistas. Among its victims was the 38-year-old Isaac Luria, a master of what had become an important spiritual factor in Jewish life, namely Kabbalah. A collection of texts containing a labyrinth of secret teachings about God. Orthodox Judaism teaches that these teachings are so secret and profound they can also be dangerous. So no one under the age of 40 is allowed in that version of Judaism to read Kabbalah. I'm going to share with you one of Kabbalah's teachings. It comes from Luria, and he was famous for one in particular. He had a totally unprecedented theory about how God created the universe. In the beginning, he claimed, only God existed. God's being extended in all directions, permeating everything. There was nothing other than God, outside of God, or within God. For God, as Paul says, was all in all. This seems conventional enough, right? But it presented a problem for Luria. If God pervades, that is, fills all space, how is there room for anything other than God to come into being? The answer Luria gave is fascinating. God, he says, had to withdraw. God had to pull back. God had to create a void within himself to allow something other than God to exist. Gershom Shalom, a Luria scholar, explains it beautifully. He writes, God was compelled to make room for the world by abandoning a region within himself a kind of mystical primordial space from which he withdrew in order to return to it in the act of creation and revelation. 
To come back to the image I have been using, God created a bubble at the center of his being which opened up the space necessary for the universe to exist. Beyond the bubble, therefore, we find nothing but God. Luria's theory coincides surprisingly well with modern science. It also provides an answer to the problem of evil. By pulling back, God limits God's self insofar as God has to open up a space for something other than God to exist. That included the possibility of suffering and evil, both of which arose as a byproduct of God's self-limitation. This was important to Luria. The Jews had faced persecution throughout the 16th century, in part because of their expulsion from Spain in 1492. Now God need not be held responsible. He could not intervene because of the self-imposed limitation God underwent to create space for us to exist. We know then the first part of this process. Let me just summarize this very clearly. God withdrew to create a space within himself for the universe to exist. But what about creation itself? How did God do it? Luria had an answer. Into the bubble God made within himself, God projected rays of creative light. Unfortunately, an accident uh, occurred. Some of the vessels carrying the light of God could not withstand the intensity. So you might think of it as almost nuclear energy. They couldn't withstand the intensity. They burst. Part of the light they carried returned to its source in God. The rest fell as sparks along with the shards of the vessels. Eventually, these sparks became trapped in material existence. The human task is to liberate or raise these sparks, to restore them to their source in God. This process of tikkun, repair or mending the cosmos, is accomplished through living a life of holiness, of helping others while being mindful of God. Do that, Luria teaches, and you liberate the sparks of divine light embedded in all matter back to their source. Luria teaches, in short, that through our actions, we play a role in helping God, and I think this is such a beautiful idea, helping God restore a broken cosmos. That is our charge. In Christian terminology, we could say something similar. By caring for and serving others as Christ did, we work with God to bring about God's kingdom. We partner with God to achieve what God originally intended for this broken, fallen world, which brings us to our gospel reading for today. Mark makes clear the purpose of Jesus' ministry from the beginning. Jesus came to Galilee, he writes, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Jesus, we soon discover, is more than a voice crying out in the wilderness proclaiming God's reign. He enacts it. Shortly after announcing its forthcoming arrival, 
He begins manifesting it by healing people with various diseases, freeing them from the power of affliction as symbolized by his exorcism of demons and the liberation from sin's power which comes through repentance. By the middle of the next chapter, Jesus has inaugurated a totally new state of affairs by restoring people to wholeness and turning the social world of those in power upside down. We see this especially in chapter 10, our reading for today, which serves as the culmination of what God's emerging kingdom will look like. There, an argument occurs within the ranks of, this, of his closest followers. James and John want honor. They want to be at the top, sitting next to Jesus in heaven. Jesus, however, makes clear the cost of discipleship. He starts by indicating what will happen to them if they truly desire to follow him. They will drink from his cup, he says, which is synonymous with martyrdom. Some of you might recall Socrates. He dies by drinking from the cup of poison henlock. This may be a reference to that. Their entrance into baptism, moreover, which he mentions subsequently, also symbolizes their death. And here you can think of Paul in Romans 6, who talks about being baptized into Christ and dying with him. The road, in other words, will not be easy. The true follower of Jesus Christ will face suffering and persecution. She or he may even be executed. But the hardest death, the hardest death, will be the death of what drives so many of us, myself included. Selfish ambition, the thirst for recognition, and the desire of gain. You must let go of these things, Jesus says to the twelve, and live for others. Whoever wishes to become great among you, he says, must become your servant, effectively establishing what the kingdom should look like when it appears in history. Let's bring this all together. Here we have two traditions calling us to do the same thing. Live for others. If you wish to be closer to God, according to Luria, imitate God who, in the creation of the cosmos, has revealed himself to be a giver. Help God mend and restore this broken world by doing likewise. Be present to those, as we discussed in our forum today, experiencing loss, bereavement, and hardship, and you will help God bring about the creation God intended. Mending God's creation finds expression in our tradition too, as well as our gospel reading for today. Our hands are the hands of God, says the ELCA, called to do God's work. Our world, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, seems to be falling apart. God needs our help putting it back together. Thankfully, he hasn't left us to do it on our own. Jesus invites us to work for the kingdom he inaugurated here on earth by following him through service to others. This week, I invite each of you, likewise, 
to find one way you can serve others. Whether it be through the giving of your time, your talent, or your treasure, make the world a better place. Restore the light of God back to God. Mend this broken creation. Enact the kingdom of God. You all know the beginning. Read by the dashing James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise, its five-year mission was simple. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To explore strange new worlds. To boldly go where no one has gone before. As people of faith, we have more than a five-year mission. We have a lifelong mission, namely, to imitate God in our giving and Christ in our living, to seek out the welfare of our neighbor, to work with God in mending the world and ushering in his kingdom, to boldly serve others as Christ has done before. For this we pray, I was almost going to say in the name of Shatner, for this we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. You can hear the full audio service at queenannelutheran.org. You can also subscribe to the Queen Anne Lutheran podcast wherever you listen. I'll be back soon with another episode of God for Grownups. Ups.